Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today we invite you to join us in our message series and dive deeper into what God's Word has for us today. As I prepared to speak today, I was curious what the internet might have to share with us in words of wisdom about the Father's Day. And by the way, I neglected to do this in the first service, so let me say welcome to all of you fathers that are here. We appreciate so much the role that you have in your families. <clears throat> so what does the internet have to tell us about Father's Day wisdom? Well, comedian and actor Steve Martin said this, a man carries pictures where his money used to be. The late Presbyterian minister Charles Wadsworth put it this way, by the time a man realizes that his father was right, he has a son who thinks he's wrong. You can relate to that too. On goodhousekeeping.com we find this, every father should remember one day his son will follow his example, not his advice. It's pretty sage wisdom for a secular source, I think. The late Coach Jim Valvano of the North Carolina Wolfpack. My father gave me the greatest gift anyone could give another person. He believed in me. And finally, townandcountrymagazine.com offered this gem. A father is neither an anchor to hold us back nor a sail to take us there, but a guiding light whose love shows us the way. I really like this nautical theme for reasons that will be clearer here in a moment. So I grew up in a large family. I'm the youngest of eight kids. I have four sisters and three brothers, so four of each of us, although two of my brothers passed away shortly after birth before I was born. All of my siblings and my parents were born in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and my dad served 20 years in the Navy. He enlisted there in Minneapolis when he was a teenager, and they lived there for a few years before the family was moved to Glenview, Illinois, where my dad served in both Glenview Naval Air Station and Great Lakes Naval Base, where I was, happened to be born. And then a year and a half later, my dad took his final transfer to Selfridge, which most of you know, it's right down the road in Harrison Township at Michigan. At the time my dad was offered his transfer, he was given an option between Selfridge and a few other choices one of which happened to be Miramar Naval Base in San Diego, California. Now, for those of you not familiar with Miramar, you might know it better from the movies, is Top Gun, right? And as a kid, I was infatuated with the fighter jets at Selfridge. And so I went to my dad and I said, Dad, why not San Diego? What possessed you to come to Selfridge and not sunny San Diego? Now understand, I, I love the Detroit area. I grew up here. Um, I lived out of state for 16 years, beginning with Bible college and college. I've lived in New York, Ohio, Texas, and Pennsylvania. And after those 16 years, I lost my job in Pittsburgh after 9-11. And I had some friends back here that I grew up with in church. And they said, come live in our basement in St. Clair Shores till you get back on your feet and find work. And so I jumped at the chance to do that. But nevertheless, I said, Dad, why not San Diego? And my dad didn't hesitate. He said, look, 
I raised you kids 760 miles from your grandparents. At best, you saw them once or twice a year. And he said, I won't do that to my kids as adults, and I won't do that to my grandkids. We're staying put. And I'm so thankful for my dad's response. When I think of my dad, I know I'm very blessed. He worked so hard providing for his family, sacrificed, loved his family, served his country with honor. He's now been married nearly 68 years. And he was a servant in our church in St. Clair Shores. Bethel Baptist, for those of you from Redeemer who are familiar, Bethel is a sister church to Redeemer. And that's what we now call Woodside Warren Campus. And, not, and my dad continues to serve along with my mother in their church in far Texas, just a few miles from the Mexico border. He was not a perfect father, but by and large, I have a very favorable image of a father because of my relationship with my dad. More succinctly said, I really looked up to my father, and I still do, even though I'm a grown man fairly advanced in years myself. So here we are on Father's Day, and as I just shared a little of my story and the image I have a father, I recognize that the image you all have might be very similar or it might be very different depending on how you were raised. Some of you were raised in a home where your father was present. He was engaged in your education, your friendships, your extracurricular activities. And most importantly, maybe he raised you up to know the Lord and worship and serve Jesus in the church. Some grew up in a home divided by divorce. And maybe you only spent every other weekend with your father, or maybe less. Some grew up being raised by a stepdad. And some looked to a grandfather, an uncle, a pastor, a coach, some other mentor in your lives. Some grew up with a verbally or physically abusive father in their home. And some never met their father because he left before they were born, or when they were very young, or may have even passed away. Whichever image you have of your father growing up, God shows us how a father cares for his children. Now, this sounds wonderful, right? Many of us have grown up in the church. We're familiar that we serve a great God who cares for his children. But what does that look like? In real time, how does God the Father actively reveal his love for his children? Today we'll be digging into Psalm 103, verses 6 through 14. As we seek to discover how God cares for his children, if you have your Bible or an electronic device, I welcome you to turn to this passage with me. We'll be spending most of our time here, but we'll be hitting some other scriptures as well. So let, re, let me remind us of the type of text we're looking at, the biblical literature that we're looking at when we come to the Psalms. The ancient songs are in the Old Testament, and the Old Testament repeatedly breaks out into poetry. Poetic books like what we find in Psalms, Proverbs, and even Job were given a system of accents by their scribes to mark their distinctiveness. Of Hebrew poetry and his work, Psalm 1 through 72, an introduction and commentary, David Kidner wrote this, By its flexibility of form, Hebrew poetry lent itself to widespread use. A familiar saying, a riddle, a speaker's appeal, a prayer, a thanksgiving, to mention only a few varieties of speech, could all slip into its rhythms almost effortlessly. So as we look at Psalm 103, David writes a hymn of praise, celebrating the abundant goodness and love of God the Father for his people. 
It is the first of four psalms reflecting on God's dealings with his people from creation to exile in Egypt. And this passage introduces the sequence by recalling that Israel's survival in the time of Moses was due to God's steadfast love. It begins with each individual singer exhorting his or her own soul to bless the Lord. And then goes on to list the benefits that the soul should be careful not to forget. Now, as we progress to verses 6 through 14, our passage reveals three ways how God cares for his children. The first way God reveals how he cares for his children is by extending mercy to us. Or put another way, we are the beneficiaries of his mercy. Look with me at verses 6 through 10 and then 12 of Psalm 103. The Lord works righteousness for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. We'll come back to verse 11 a little later, but let's skip down to verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. So back in verse 6, it says, The Lord works righteousness for all who are oppressed. The word righteousness is a better and more basic word than the term vindication. And vindication is the act of clearing someone of blame or suspicion. is only part of what God does for us. For he puts straight not only the record, as the term would imply by itself, but also the whole situation and all the people concerned. And notice it says the Lord works righteousness. Thank God righteousness in our lives is not dependent on us working it out, or even on God working with what we can bring to him in our own strength. Because we were reminded in Isaiah 64, 6, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Or you may be familiar with a different translation that says filthy rags. And that's all we have to offer in our own strength and resources. Just filthy rags. But how far reaching is God's mercy? We find out in verse 7. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. God's ways and acts were not only displayed in the Exodus miracles, but brought home to the children of Israel immediately and tirelessly while they were at Mount Sinai and wandering in the wilderness. Why? For what purpose? We see the answer to this beginning over in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2, if you want to turn there. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart. And in verse 3, it tells us, He let them hunger and he fed them with manna, that he might make you know the man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So this traveling 40 years in the wilderness was not empty wandering or useless information. It was for the training of sons and daughters. To know whether our heart is to serve God and to understand that his word is the source of everything good in our lives, and even our very lives themselves. This training in the wilderness was so important that this was one of the passages Jesus quoted when he had fasted, was doubtlessly very hungry, and tempted by Satan for 40 days in his own wilderness. 
A good father is not one who shelters his children from trials and tests, but a good father is one who prepares his children through those trials and tests to teach them of the goodness of his heavenly father, of the greatness of his love, of his limitless and unending provision of our every need. Returning to Psalm 103 and verse 8, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Now this verse quotes nearly word for word the self-portrait of God in Exodus 34, 6, where it says, The Lord passed before him, him being Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The context of this passage in Exodus is the second time God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses on Mount Sinai. You'll recall that after the first time, Moses had come down the mountain only to find that the children of Israel had made a golden calf and were worshiping it, not only worshiping it, but declaring that it was the God who took them out of Egypt. In his anger, Moses threw the tablets of stone to the ground, breaking them in countless pieces. Moses demonstrated what we Christians like to refer to as righteous indignation. He was, his anger was not unfounded. I mean, the Israelites had violated the very first commandment that God had given Moses, which he was then holding in his arms. You will have no other gods before me, resulting in the need for God to give the commandments a second time. And how does God respond in the midst of having to provide the stone tablets a second time due to the disobedience of his children? He proclaims of himself, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Oh, how very much our God loves his children. Continuing now with verses 9 and 10. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. These very human terms point out the contrast between God's generosity and the heavy-handedness of man, who loves to keep his quarrels going. Chide actually translates from a Hebrew term used for disputes in the nurse's grievances. He would be completely justified to be in a constant state of dispute with us over our sin, our disobedience, and whatever idols we make in our own lives and elevate in priority over him. But God, although infinitely wronged, not only tempers his wrath, but also tempers his justice. He is merciful. He is gracious. He is slow to anger. And he does abound in steadfast love and faithfulness. But he is also sinless. He's righteous. And he is just. And as such, he cannot tolerate our sin or let it go unpunished. He can forgive our sins, but there is still a price to be paid for the forgiveness of our sins. And that price was a spotless sacrifice of Jesus on the cross in our place. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, as Hebrews 9.22 tells us. So how are we the beneficiaries of his mercy? The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 5.8, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul goes on to tell us in chapter 6, verses 23, For the wages of sin is death. This is what we deserve. 
but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Like any gift, although it is free, we have to actually receive it. So how do we do that? Paul tells us a little further down in chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If accepting this free gift of God that God provided through Jesus the Son is something you have not done but want to do, you can do so right now where you're sitting. In the quietness of your heart, you can pray to him. Tell him that you know you're a sinner, that you know he died for your sins, that you're utterly incapable of saving yourself, and that you confess him as Lord, and you will be saved. If this is something that you've done today, would you do me a favor? Would you let me or one of the pastors, Evan or Tyler, know before you leave here? We would love to rejoice with you and pray with you. But if this is something that's of further interest to you, we'd be happy to sit down and open the scriptures with you and look a little more deeply into this. I know we took a little bit of a detour there, but that's okay. At Woodside, we believe the very most important thing we can do is point people to Jesus. And we make no apologies for that. But to tie our detour back into our text, let's look with me at verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Now, most of you know I have a degree in accounting, and I've worked in the finance field for a little over 30 years. What you may not know about me is before I got that degree in accounting, I was a math secondary education major. And in my math training, um, in probably doubtless in many of your math classes, of your training, I learned how to distinguish a line from a line segment, right? And when we draw a line segment, it has two points on either end that define it. That segment is limited between those points. It goes no further. But when we draw a line, we don't put any points on it, and we put arrowheads on either end. And what that signifies is that line continues in either direction, never to cross, never to meet, forever and ever and ever. And so when God says that as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sin from us, in effect what the text is saying is, not only has God forgiven us our sin, but he's put us on a different path. Right, We're going in one direction, and our sin is completely removed from us in the other direction, never to be seen again. And that's how far he's removed our sin from us. Now, if the Lord has forgiven us that much, how can we not also forgive one another, including our own children or our imperfect fathers? Colossians 3.13 says it this way, Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. See, our Heavenly Father has forgiven us by His grace through faith in Jesus, as it says right there on that wall. And He bore the weight of the cross that we deserved. His body was battered and beaten. He had iron spikes driven through His hands and His feet. His pain-stricken body was raised high above the earth for all to see and witness his agony as he hung there, and he did nothing to deserve it. But he willingly took our place and died for us 
while we were still sinners. That's the love and grace our Heavenly Father has shown, and that is the kind of grace we are to imitate as fathers, as husbands, as grandfathers, employees, bosses, coworkers, neighbors, as people in general. No, we're not called to hang on the cross, but we are called to demonstrate the depth of his love, mercy, and grace to others in our lives. So let me ask you a question. If somebody were to approach you or 12 people, I'm sorry, 10 people in your life at random, would they say that you show this kind of love and grace? Would they say that of me? Would they say you're quick to forgive? Or would they say they wronged you X number of years and you've never let them forget it? Or worse yet, would they say, he said he could never forgive me for what I did. I know I've heard others say that in my life. Thankfully, not about me, but about somebody we both knew. And I absolutely shudder every time I hear those words or something similar spoken. God, teach us to love and forgive one another as you have forgiven us. If you struggle with forgiving somebody, allow the Holy Spirit to transform your heart. Surrendering to his will and trading your negative thoughts and emotions and attitudes for positive ones. But know this, if we simply try to be better, we'll never achieve it in our own strength. The key is to submit to the ways and acts of Christ, which he has made known to us, and to walk in step with the Holy Spirit who indwells every believer. Consider these contrasts that demonstrate the way of Christ. Resentment means holding on to your side of the story. Trade resentment for sympathy which is trying to understand the other side of the story. Hate is continuing to dislike with hostility. Trade hate for forgiveness. Abandonment means I'm done with you and I don't want to see or talk to you again. Trade abandonment for peace, which says let's find a way to work this out. 1 Peter 3.8 expands on these themes. Peter says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Show sympathy because God has shown you sympathy. This means have the type of relationship where what one of you feels, the other feels also. As Pastor Jeff has reminded us several times, this requires engagement in community. This level of sympathy cannot be achieved in isolation. For how can we feel what others feel when we don't know what they're feeling? Love. Show love because God has shown you love. We know 1 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning with verse 4, is a classic passage on love. Here the Apostle Paul says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. Parenthetically, rather, it insists on the way of Christ. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Tenderhearted. Be tenderhearted as God is tenderhearted. God is easily moved to love, pity, sorrow, and compassion. And finally, humble. Be humble as Christ is humble. Do not be proud or haughty, not arrogant or assertive, but reflective. 
And Pastor Tyler has shared with us on several occasions is he's fans of the TV show, The Chosen. And I've shared with him that I'm also a fan. If you're not familiar with it, let me tell you a little bit about one particular episode where Jesus' disciples, Matthew and Thomas, are preparing a meal for Jesus and the other disciples traveling with them. Now, the show depicts Matthew as a child prodigy. He was very gifted in math, which I can kind of relate to. Um, But at the age of eight, he skipped out of Torah school, and he went for advanced training in accounting, I guess, um, (laughs) where he became a taxpayer. And at the age of 13, he purchased his own home because his parents had disowned him. Because as a taxpayer, his parents and all of the Jews viewed him as a puppet of the Roman Empire and a traitor of the Jewish people. So in this one particular scene, Matthew and and Thomas are preparing this meal, and Matthew can sense the tension, because not only did all the Jews hate Matthew, but all the disciples did early on too, according to the TV show. And, And Matthew can sense this tension, and so he says, why don't you like me? And Thomas says, because you're arrogant. To which Matthew responded, I am not arrogant, I'm very humble. Right? And Thomas' response to Matthew was, you're boasting about being humble. Right? So scripture doesn't, what does it mean to be humble? It's very difficult to say, but one thing is for certain. The moment we believe we are humble is the moment we're furthest from it. And Scripture does give us insight into humility in several places, in particular in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, which is one of my favorite books, and in James and 1 Peter in the New Testament. And the common theme in all three of these books is that if we're truly humble, God will lift us up, not our own words or thoughts or those of others. So James 4.10 says it this way, Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will exalt you. In 1 Peter 5, 6 is very similar. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. In Daniel, he demonstrated this humility in chapter 2 of his book. Now, you may recall that in chapter 2, Daniel had a vision. I'm sorry, rather, King Nebuchadnezzar had a vision. And the king had decided he was very troubled by this vision. He didn't understand what it meant, or we might call it a dream. Right? And so he called all of his wise men together and said, I've decided that not only do you have to interpret my dream, but you have to tell me what the substance of the dream was. And the wise men rightly said, but how can we do that? Nobody can do that. And the king said, I've decided this in my heart because, frankly, he was wise enough to realize that if he told them the dream, they could make up anything and say, oh, this is the meaning of your dream, O king, Right? So that's what he did. And Daniel demonstrated his humility because he prayed that the Lord would reveal the dream and its meaning to him, which the Lord ultimately did. And what was Daniel's response? I mean, he could have gone to the king and said, look, I have this great wisdom. I know your dream and I know its interpretation. And it would probably be fitting for you to bless me tremendously with wealth and riches and honor and all that good stuff, right? But no, Daniel's response was first to go before God, before he goes to the king. In chapter 2, verses 19 through 23, it tells us, Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. 
He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might and have made known to me what was asked of you. That was Daniel's response. But Daniel still has to go before the king. And Daniel's not in prayer when he goes before the king. He has one more opportunity to claim the glory for himself. And the king says to him in verse 26, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? The short answer was yes. Daniel was able to make that known to him. But that was in Daniel's response. In verses 27 and 28, he said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who, sorry, this gets me choked up, who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to the king what will be in the later, latter days. Did God lift him up? Absolutely. And I'm not talking about being given many great gifts, being made the ruler of all of Babylon beneath a king, being made the chief prefect of all of the wise men of Babylon, which he all received from the king. Undoubtedly, that was through the divine providence of God blessing his faithful servant. But Daniel in chapter 10 has a vision of his own. And he's given a vision and an interpretation And God sends his angel to speak to him personally. And the angel tells him in verse 12 of chapter 10, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. That's powerful, man. The angel says, in effect, your humility has made your prayers heard and is worthy of a visit from my personal messenger to deliver the message. Now that's how God exalts the humble. Praise the Lord that we are the beneficiaries of his mercy. But that's not all. We're also the focus of his love. Let's look again at Psalm 103 in verse 8. Here he says, King David says, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And now verse 11, which we skipped past earlier. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. Now when I think of the phrase slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, I immediately think of my mother. She's a very sweet woman who I cannot remember ever speaking ill of anyone. Even if I thought they might have deserved such treatment. She seems to have a genuine affection for everyone she meets, and as far as I can tell, everybody feels mutually about her. She is what I would call a true peacemaker. Why do I mention a story about my mother on Father's Day? Well, I've heard it said that men are every bit as emotional as women, but we just show our emotion mainly through anger. We tend to get heated, we have a short fuse, We raise our voice. Is that true of you? I know it's been said of me. This is not the kind of love our Heavenly Father shows us, and in return, it shouldn't be the posture that we show our families. We are called to show steadfast love. Do you know what steadfast love means? A synonym for it would be unswerving, 
Have you ever been on the road and veered off onto those rumble strips on the shoulder? Or even into another lane? God's love is completely consistent. It does not have the fallen nature of our love. It is unwavering and perfectly patient with us, not enabling, not just trying to keep the peace, but a love that understands exactly what we need and when we need it. So how great is the Lord's unfast, I'm sorry, steadfast, unswerving and unwavering love for us? Verse 11 tells us, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. And how high are the heavens? Well, let's think back to our story about our illustration of the line, right? If we draw a line from the earth going up with an arrow, it goes on forever and ever, just like the heavens do. The Apostle John expressed it this way in 1 John 4, 7 through 11. And by the way, if you're like me, you might be most familiar with this passage through a song you may have learned many, many years ago. And I'll do my best to resist the urge to sing it, even though I did tour with Word of Life Collegian singing group while I was at the Bible Institute. But just so you know, if you're singing it in your mind, I am too. <laughs> so in verse 7, he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, or as we might say, focused on us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation Fancy word that basically means the full payment or uh, the redemption price for our sins. Beloved, if God has so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Powerful, powerful words. We're not just the beneficiaries, but also the focus of his love. So who are the beneficiaries of your love and of my love? Are you, do you find yourself being more kind and gentle and patient and forgiving with complete strangers in a store, in a restaurant, maybe in a police cruiser, than our own families, our loved ones, our coworkers, our neighbors that we come into contact with on a regular basis, people we have actual relationships with? And who or what is the focus of your love? Is it your hobbies, whether it be fishing, hunting, working out, vacationing, camping? Is it your job, your position, your pay, your promotions, advancement, achievement? Or is it your home, your spouse, and your children? Those you have the closest relationship with. Mother Teresa said, if you want to change the world, go home and love your family. Andy Stanley, the son of the late Pastor Charles Stanley, said it this way, Your greatest contribution to the kingdom of God may not be something you do, but someone you raise. Don't feel defeated. You're not alone and you never have been. The question is, are you willing to fight for your family so that they can be the beneficiaries and focus of your love? We're not only the beneficiaries of his mercy and the focus of his love, but we're also the recipients of his compassion. 
Let's look back in Psalm 103 at verses 13 and 14, where he says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers we are dust. What in the world does compassion mean? I mean, it might sound odd, but compassion is something people have always struggled with. Even in the Old Testament, God had chosen a nation, a people, the Israelites, to be his possession. He gave them a mission. He showed them grace and favor in unique ways. But they constantly took it too far and turned it into entitlement and elitism, much like we can relate to in our society today, I think. Rather than focusing outwardly on how to demonstrate God as the king to the nations, rather than living as a community that constantly pointed people to God, they turned inwardly, and it eventually led to feel a sense of superiority. This led Israel to think God's compassion was limited to only themselves. And our compassion should never be limited to just ourselves or our families. Our compassion should be freely given to all. The Lord's compassion exceeds logic. And that's the compassion we are meant to possess as we follow the ways and acts of Christ. Usually the people we tend to be least compassionate towards are the exact ones God is calling us to show compassion to. People like, oh, the politician of an opposing belief who's saddling our children and grandchildren with insurmountable debt. The celebrity who spends more on that weekend vacation than you and I earn in a year. The outspoken person who's always got to be the center of attention, always one up in everybody's stories. Maybe it's somewhere out there in the world or maybe it's someone a little closer. Maybe it's that person who was supposed to be your friend and have your back and stick up for you. Maybe it's a person who lied to you and took advantage of you. Maybe it's a person in your home that was supposed to love you and abused you. I mean, we know we're all sinners, right? Regular people like you and me who are maybe religious, but we have little falls and slip-ups here and there, right? But then there are sinners, right? People of violence, people of perversion, people of excess. Put a better way people who sin differently than you and I do, or maybe people who sin more openly than you and I do. Because we're all sinners, and we all fall short of the glory of God, as Romans 3.23 tells us. But verse 14 reminds us, for he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. God knows everything about us, all that we come with, good, the bad, and the ugly. Yet he has compassion on us despite our baggage. We all have a story of how we've messed up repeatedly. But oh, how great the Father's love for us. We are nothing more than dust. But the Lord shows compassion on those who fear him. So what is the meaning of this word fear? Are we to tremble and cower in the corner whenever we think of our God as somebody waiting to zap us for doing wrong, which we inevitably do? No, this fear is a quiet reverence. An acknowledgement that our God, who makes us the beneficiaries of his mercy, the focus of his love, and the recipients of his compassion, is the same God who has always existed, who created everything that is by speaking the words, and who reigns on the throne and will forevermore. 
We fear him not because of what he might do to us when we mess up, but because of who he is. We honor, revere, and respect him who alone is the perfect father. But let us not forget, in the midst of all this, Satan will use relational conflict to advance his cause of destroying our lives. This is a major part of his playbook. He wants to see the death of our marriages, our families, our coworker relationships, our friendships, and sadly, our churches too. But Paul reminds us in Ephesians 6.12, For we, are, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. So we're not each other's enemies. We have a common enemy, which is the enemy of God. And that passage goes on to reveal how we should put on the whole armor of God in standing against that enemy. But while Satan is running every play in his playbook with the limited time that he has left, he cannot escape one conclusion. We have God's book. And that tells us how it will all end. Thank you, Joseph. That's right. With God still seated on the throne and ruling forever and ever. But until that time comes, fathers, mothers, all here, stand firm against the attacks of the enemy with the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we bless you and thank you for the wisdom of your word. We know that we all have imperfect fathers. We know that we've all been imperfect as parents, those of us who have children, Lord. And we thank you for your mercy for your love and for your compassion that loves us in spite of who we are. Lord, we bless you today and we pray that you will continue to bless us as we end our service today. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org slash connect to introduce yourself to us today.